Thank you, David, and thank you all. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, yes, so I'm sad that my wife and kids were not able to come. Uh, we are, we, we uh, live in Carroll Stream, just north of Wheaton, and serve at a church uh, called All People's Fellowship. We, were, uh, we moved here and live in the house right next to the church and serve at that church. And for the past year, we had been without a lead pastor. Um, and just about a month, let's see, almost two months ago now, we merged with another church um, and now have a lead pastor, and I serve as pastor of family ministries there. Um, so my, my family's back there uh, serving, and, and I'm here. So thank you so much for having me. It is, it is really an honor um, to be here. Let's, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for songs and worship, Lord, um, for reminding us of who you are. You are holy. Uh, For reminding us of what the world is really like. Your glory is all over. Uh, I pray that we would believe that, that we would trust in you. And Lord, as we we look a little bit about, we look a little bit at the your global vision, I pray that that vision would capture our hearts and that we would be um, just full of love for others, um, that we'd be inspired um, by the massive family that we are a part of just by being your children. Um, I pray for Restoration Community Church, Lord. I thank you for, for their presence here in the Naperville community. I pray that they would be a beacon of light and of your love for this community. Praise in your name. Amen. So David mentioned to me that um, a lot of the guest speakers over the past several months have, have been connected in some way to global ministries. Um, and I also saw on your website that, that uh, global mission and local mission are a core part of the identity of Restoration Community Church, which was I, awesome to see um, because for me at least, the global vision of God has been a key part of my whole life. And so this morning, what I want to do is share a little bit about my story um, so you know who I am, and um, partly because my story connects quite a bit with global ministries. Uh, And then I want to take a look at one passage, Isaiah 2, and we'll turn there in a little bit, um, to see, because this passage gives us a snapshot of God's vision for the world, what God says is going to happen in the world. So I want to look there at that passage and just ask two questions of the passage. The first question looks inward, and it's how do we live as Christians in light of God's global vision? And the second question looks outward. So how should God's global family respond to the needs and issues in the global church? We'll come back to those questions in a bit. Uh, but I wanted to start by sharing a little bit, sorry, um, uh, about my, my story. So I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, which is not far from Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Uh, my father was completing a seminary degree there, and uh, uh, once he finished, we moved to Rochester, New York, where they planted, my parents planted a church. Um, and then when I was seven years old, uh, my parents felt called to international ministry. So after raising financial and spiritual support, we moved to Costa Rica for a year to a language school, uh, and then 
And from there, we went on to Lima, Peru to serve as missionaries. And as missionaries, my parents were highly involved with local church ministry. Um, they did a lot of teaching and training and mentoring pastors and leaders. Um, for me and my siblings, I'm the second of five. Uh, growing up in Peru was more pretty much just like growing up, right? We, were, we just grew up in Lima as regular people. So I, I spent a lot of time playing basketball on the local club team. And I spent a lot of time at church, uh, partly because my parents were missionaries, so I had to be there, uh, but also because we had an amazing youth group, um, just a great youth uh, ministry there, where I actually met my wife, Adriana, um, when we were both 15 years old. And I want to tell you a little bit about that youth group, because it was so impactful and part of my story. Um, in that youth group, we had a youth leader. His name is, I have a picture here, Victor Iraola and his wife, Betty. Uh, they weren't married at the time. But Victor was our youth leader, and he had a significant impact in my life and in my wife Adriana's life. He, um, <clears throat> he actually the, he led Adriana to faith. The first time she ever visited youth group uh, or church, <laughs> she, he preached and then shared the gospel with her, and she became a Christian that day. For me, he just spent years discipling me and pouring into me and a few other people. And, and he really uh, made a lasting impact. But what's interesting is Victor had no training at all. No informal or formal training. No schooling of almost any kind. Right? What he had was a massive heart. He just loved people and did the best he could. And he, he created this environment, this youth group that that really uh, made a lasting impact on me and many other people. Um, so looking back, I think there are three things about this youth group that, that uh, were impactful. The first is that Victor really cared for us. He was, he was present with us all the time. He played with us when we were, you know, 15-year-olds, uh, whether it was soccer in the park, and I don't know uh, if you know much about Peru, but soccer is everything. We played soccer all the time. All the, everywhere, every Saturday before youth group, we'd play soccer for a couple hours. And he would play with us. He'd play these dumb youth group games that we would do. He was always hanging out with us. And he participated in our discussions and conversations. He got to know our families. When my wife, Adriana, her, her family was going through some tough times, he would go over to their house and, and meet with their dad, uh, Adriana's dad, and spend time with him and, and care for him and invest relationally with their family. Right? So the first thing is that Victor really cared for people. The second thing is that he included us in ministry. Right? So as youth students, we weren't just ministered to. We weren't there just as recipients of this youth ministry. We were team members. We were participants. And that made a difference. Whether it was teaching or preparing a game or setting up for a camping retreat or whatever it may be, we were participants, and he treated us like responsible human beings, even when we were young and probably pretty irresponsible. And that caused us to step up to the plate and do our part, because we had to. It was our job. And that made an impact. And the third thing is that this youth group uh, was a place that felt like home. We all, all the students, uh, were like a family. We hung out together. We loved each other. We became very good friends. Several of the youth members ended up marrying each other, uh, including both Adriana and I and uh, 
Adriana's brother. This picture is a little dark, sorry. Uh, I got it off Facebook. But, <laughs> but Adriana's brother married my sister. And we checked, there's nothing illegal or genetically dangerous about that. Um, but yeah, so this is a, a picture at my sister and brother-in-law's wedding. Our kids are like almost genetically siblings. It's kind of crazy. Um, but that's, that's, this youth group became family. That's how much we loved each other. Um, but now there are people from this youth group that live all over the world. One, one of our friends lives in, in Portugal and sometimes Germany. He's all over the place. We've got one in Louisiana, Philadelphia. Uh, we live in Illinois. Another lives in Michigan. All over the Another in Wisconsin. All over the place. But a lot of us still stay connected because this environment was a welcoming, caring place where we were family. And that was a lasting, made a lasting impact. Sometimes you don't even see that impact right away. Sometimes it takes years to see that impact. But it happened, and it, and it really uh, made a difference. So my youth group and teen years, living, up and grow, living and growing up in Peru, were really formative, both for my faith and just for me as a person. Um, back to the bigger picture of the story. My parents served in Peru for about 15 years. Um, I lived there from 9 or 10. I can never remember exactly. I think it was maybe 10 to 18. Then I came to the U.S., uh, studied at Hope College, and I moved back to Peru and got married to Adriana, uh, started working, became a naturalized Peruvian citizen, and I planned, and the plan was just to live there uh, for, forever. Um, but God had, seemed to have different plans for us. In about 2011, Adriana and I uh, both at the same time started to discern that something was up. Um, we'd been married for about a year, and we were both had good jobs. Adriana was a flight attendant, so she got to fly all over the world. Um, and I worked in business in a textile company. And right around the same time, we began to feel that something was off, that maybe God had something else for us. We weren't feeling fulfilled, and we, we were feeling like we needed to figure something out. So we sought some counsel from my parents, and we decided to spend some time praying and saying, what, what, God, what do you have for us? What do you want for us? And after about six months of praying, we decided that maybe God wanted us to be in ministry uh, full-time. So we both ended up leaving our jobs because our jobs were, um, didn't allow us the flexibility that we needed to serve the way that we felt we needed to do. Um, so we left our jobs and, and invested as much as we could in our local church ministry, doing youth ministry, preaching, teaching, worship, discipleship, a bunch of different things. And very quickly, God affirmed that this seemed to be the place that we were supposed to be. That ministry seemed like a good fit. So then we said, okay, how do we do this long term? What, what might this look like? Uh, and we thought it'd be good to gain some education. It'd be good to learn a little bit more about how to do this well. So in 2013, uh, Dan and I moved to the United States so that we could do that. So I pursued a theological degree, a Master of Divinity, and Adriana pursued her bachelor's degree in psychology. And our plan was we come to the United States, we gain education. Because in Peru, it's very difficult to get education. Um, Adriana had never had a chance to do that. And for theological degrees, there are no options for that. Um, so the plan was we come here, we get education, and we go back to Peru and do theological education and church planting. Uh, and at first, the first year or so that we were in the United States, we're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we uh, basically, the only thing we wanted to do was go back to Peru. We did not want to be here. <laughs> We, for example, we didn't even want to buy bikes. 
like the type that you ride, you know. We don't want to buy those because we were like, if that costs a couple hundred dollars, that's a couple hundred dollars that could go towards a plane ticket to go home. And pretty quickly we realized that's no way to live. <laughs> you need to invest in the place that you're living. So we decided, we were convicted of that, we decided to do that, and we started to invest in our life in the United States. Um, so we invested in our church, started to really dig in there to serve and to make relationships. Um, we uh, also started having children, uh, four to be exact. And I think there was a small picture up there already. I'll put up another one. Um, yeah, so we have four kids. We have Isla. And David, that was impressive with the names. No one gets our, the names right, but you did great. Um, so Isla is the one on the bottom left. She's eight, just turned eight on the, uh, last week. Ilana's right next to her. Um, Isaiah with a messy jersey is, I'm holding, and then he's five, and then Imara is our two-year-old. And sorry about the pictures. I realized that my family's terrible at pictures. <laughs> I was, like, looking for pictures, and I could not find any where we were all together uh, except camping pictures with half-eaten uh, hot dogs. So sorry about that, but this is my family. So we, 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 had, we started having kids, and we slowly but surely began making, continued making progress toward our goal of going back to Peru uh, and serving the Peruvian church. But it's been a long journey. Adriana and I uh, moved to the U.S. This, this month in like a couple days. It'll be 10 years. And our original plan was try to get back as quickly as possible. So if, if that was the goal, we've kind of failed. But over these 10 years, God has refined what, it, what his call for us. He's helped us to see maybe there's a better way or a different way. Um, so a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to pursue a PhD in Old Testament at Wheaton. And we decided to go for it in large part because it matches well with the needs in Latin America. It matches very well. Throughout Latin America, uh, and in Peru particularly, there is an urgent need for pastors that are equipped and have training. The church is growing rapidly. There are more and more people coming to know the Lord all the time. And amen, that, that, praise God for that, right? That's great. But there's a, a, a need because most pastors have almost no training at all. One of my friends um, from Peru, uh, he's a, the director of a seminary there, a small unaccredited seminary. And he said, he was visiting actually last week, and he said, there are 33 million people living in Peru. And out of those 33 million, there are maybe three that have a PhD in Bible or theology. That's not a lot. That's not a lot at all. There's a big need. There's a big need. And in many cases, people don't pursue theological education, not because they don't want to, but it's, it's because there are no options. There are no schools for them. There's nowhere to go. And then there's no schools partly because there's nowhere to train teachers for those schools. So it, there's a serious problem. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But back in the 1970s, a Latin American theologian named René Padilla said that the biggest problem for the Latin American church was that it lacked its own theological reflection. It lacked its own theological reflection. What he meant was that the church in Peru and in Latin America needed to learn, needed to be able to think about, think critically about what it means to be a Christian here in this time and in this place, in our context. It needed to be able to do that on its own and not rely on the North, North America and Europe. 
But that wasn't happening. That was the biggest need. All the books are translated, and they come from the north. The, sa- the heroes of the church are some of the same heroes you might find here. The same pastors and writers and professors and missionaries. It's the same. René Padilla said the Latin American church needed its own critical or theological reflection. That was over 50 years ago. And that situation may have improved a little bit, but not that much. Right? So in Latin America, there are tons of passionate followers of Jesus. But there is a massive need for theological training. A massive need for leaders that think critically about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this time and place. So back in 2013, Adriana and I moved to the United States. And our goal was gain education and go back to Peru to do theological education and uh, church planning. And the plan is, once I finish the PhD, hopefully, Lord willing, in two or three years, that we will we'll do that. We'll go back and focus on theological education because that's the biggest need. And we're part, uh, David mentioned, we're part of United World Mission. Um, it's a mission organization, and I'm on a team called the Theological Education Initiative. This is a team of missional scholars Uh, Most of them have PhDs or masters in Bible or theology or something like that. And the point is they've had extensive training. What they do is they they, they are embedded in schools, uh, seminaries and informal institutions as well. And they just serve as faculty and as mentors in Africa, in Asia, and in Latin America. And they just serve these institutions and these churches and just try to help raise the level of education. And for us, that means we'll go back to Peru and we will serve in some institution. There aren't many options, so I don't know where exactly. And because there aren't many options, there's a good chance that within the first five or so years that we're there, uh, that we will probably put together a team and try to launch a new school of some type to serve the church there. Um, So that's a little bit about my story and uh, vision for international ministry and the situation in, in Peru and Latin America. I'll come back to some of that in a bit. But with that as a backdrop, I want to turn now to Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So go ahead and open your Bibles if you'd like. I'll put it, it'll be on the screen as well. Um, But in this passage, we see a snapshot of God's global vision. And I said before, we're going to answer two questions. The first one is, how do we live as Christians in light of God's global vision? All right? So have that that question in mind. How do we live as Christians in light of of God's global vision. Let's let's read the passage. Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills, and all nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that he may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this passage is a vision 
It's a picture of the future. And Isaiah was an 8th century prophet, which means that he preached and prophesied about 2,800 years ago, a very long time ago. And he speaks about days to come, days in the future, days that we also can look forward to, a hope for a different future. And what does this future look like? What does this future look like? So first he says that the mountain of the house of the Lord is established as the highest mountain. It's raised, it's elevated above all the hills. Now in the ancient world, temples were located on mountains or hills, almost always. And that's because the ancients believed that, the, that mountains were the places, were the place where, where gods lived. Mountains were where the gods lived. Mountains were considered sacred places. So in this vision, Yahweh's mountain, the God of Israel's mountain, is elevated. It's supernaturally lifted up so that it's higher than all of the other mountains. And people from all over the world see this. They see this and notice it. It catches their attention because this is strange. Something has happened. But what does this mean? What's going on here? This is a politically and religiously charged vision. The nation of Israel was a small, tiny, insignificant kingdom. Now, we read the Bible, and it focuses quite a bit on the nation of Israel, right? Especially the Old Testament. And so we can get the idea that it was a big deal. And it is a big deal for God and for us in some ways. But in the ancient world, it also was not a big deal. It was a tiny, insignificant nation. And it was surrounded by international superpowers. On the one hand, it had Assyria. And on the other side, it had Egypt. And these two massive nations, for a long time, dominated the whole region. And they did so on behalf of their gods. They ruled and fought over the land between them, which is where Israel and these other nations that are mentioned often in the Old Testament, like Moab and Ammon and Edom. All these nations are in the middle, and the big superpowers on the sides fight over the middle and dominate this region. But in this vision of Isaiah, the religious and political order is flipped on its head, right? If the Lord's mountain is higher, if it's raised above all of the other mountains, then what what Isaiah is saying is that the Lord wins. The God of Israel wins. All the other gods are inferior. All the other powers, the political and religious powers that are controlling everyone's destiny and everyone's lives, they're at best subordinate. The Lord, the God of Israel, is supreme. And everyone around the world sees it, even Egypt and Assyria. And because they see it, They do something about it, right? It says that the nations stream to Yahweh's temple. They stream to Yahweh's temple. So both in Hebrew and in English, that is an aquatic metaphor. The people are flowing like water. But there's something strange about the flow of this river. Does anyone, can anyone notice what's strange about the flow of this river that's a little bit off? What was that? It's going up. It's flowing up a mountain. Water doesn't flow up mountains. It's going to the highest mountain, to the house 
of the Lord. And there's this irresistible draw that's overpowering gravity and the laws of nature as we know them, bringing people to the Lord's temple. And in verse 3, it says, Many peoples shall come and say. Many peoples. Many peoples does not refer to the number of people. It refers to the number of people groups. And what do they say? They say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This verse is incredible. It speaks to the beautiful complexity of God's people. So these other people groups from other nations with different gods, recognize the identity of a particular god. They mentioned the god of Jacob. And in our world today, this doesn't seem like that big of a thing. It may not even seem like a big deal because we're often skeptical of spiritual, spiritual realities. Right? As Christians, we know other gods don't exist. So we might think, oh, they're just converting to Israelite religion. They're just converting to Yahweh, to worshiping Yahweh. But that's, that's not how the ancient world worked. Every nation in the ancient world had their own gods. They all believed also in the existence of all the other gods. So all of the people of all the nations had their own gods. So when the people recognize that the Lord, the God of Jacob, is the high God, They're accepting the God of another nation. But that's not it. What do they call this God? How how do they identify this God? What does it say? The God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. They're recognizing a historical relationship between a particular people and a particular God. And they, as outsiders, pursue that God because they acknowledge that that God is supreme over even their own gods. So they, they are in their country, in their place, say, with worshiping their gods. But then they see that mountain, and they see it's higher than all the other mountains. And they say, something is going on here. We need to go to that God. It's not our God, but we need to go there, to the God of Jacob. They recognize this God's authority. And they approach coming with a desire to learn. In humility, they come. Desperate for help. And they go to follow this God that is not their God because they need to learn how to follow this God. What they don't do is they don't co-opt that God and say, oh, let's do the same thing and worship that God now. Rather, they go and say, we need to learn and learn the ways of this God. We need to understand what it looks like to follow this God. They need this because they don't know what it, what it means on their own. They don't know how to please this God. They don't know what sacrifices this God requires. They don't know what they should do, what they shouldn't do. So they go and say, we need to learn. And we see the result of that in verse 4. It says, oops, I think I messed something up. 
is, can we go to the next slide? I pushed the wrong button. Okay, thank you. And he says this, you shall judge, or he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So these different nations, they stream to the Lord and they are subordinate to the Lord's rule and to the Lord's authority. They say, this God is so powerful that we will submit. This God will decide who's right and who's wrong. And then the tools of war will be turned into tools of agriculture, right? That, that which was used for violence is now used for the production of food. Did you all know that currently, according to the Geneva Academy, there are 110 armed conflicts going on around the world? 110 armed conflicts. Some of them have lasted for over 50 years where people have been killing each other. Our world is full of violence. It's full of bloodshed. So much so that we can sometimes grow numb to it. We can ignore it or forget it. But the reality is that our world is brutally violent. So in light of that reality, the idea that, that uh, the equipment of war will be eliminated and that nations won't even have to learn how to wage war anymore, that is really good news. That is really good news. So Isaiah's vision displays this, a better world. A world where war is no more, where conflicts are resolved, where people from every nation come together and they're united around this one God. It's a beautiful vision. It's a, it's a great vision. And one day, this vision will be here in its fullness. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what does this vision mean for us, right? How do we live, how does this vision help us live as Christians now? What does God's global vision mean for us? And I want to mention two quick uh, implications. Now, these are not personal implications. These are more communal implications, things that are meant to impact the way that we think, the way that we see the world as a body, as a community. The first one is this. No national church is uniquely special. No national church is uniquely special, right? So the American church is one out of the many peoples that come to the Lord. There are many people groups that come to the Lord, and they all come as outsiders, right? We come to a God who was not our own, alongside others who are also outsiders, we don't have a special seat at the table or a uniquely elevated role in God's vision. We, along with every other nation, have the amazing gift of streaming to the Lord to learn what it means to live as followers of Jesus, to live as humans as God purposed from the beginning. And one thing that this means when it, when it comes to international ministry or intercultural ministry, it means that we get to be learners as much as we get to be teachers. Because we get to meet brothers and sisters who do things differently and yet still walk in the ways of God. We don't impose our ways of doing things. Rather, together, we pursue God's ways of doing things. And we do it together. And 
this is really good news for us uh, when it comes to global and local ministry uh, and, and local and global missionary effort. Because what brings people to God is not our hard work. It's not our message. People stream to the Lord because they see the mountain of God elevated above all the others. They come because of God. They see the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, as supreme. And they humbly come saying, I need to learn what it means to follow this God. And we get to participate in that. But it's not our job to make that happen. We can't make that happen. Because the only one that can make a river flow up is God. That, that, that's really good news. It takes the pressure off, but it also it should inspire us to say, to look at that mountain, God's mountain, and say, wow. Like we sang this morning, God's glory fills the whole earth. Let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's share that. Let's live that out. Which leads to the second implication. No nation may be uniquely special, but the church of every nation is supremely special in that each are recipients of the gifts of God. So notice that in verse 4, which we still have up here, um, all the people that stream to the mountains of the Lord, they're still different nations. Right? There's still many different nations. And there still are distinctions between them. They all come to learn the ways of the Lord, but they're still different nations. And this makes sense because throughout Scripture, it's clear that the people of God come from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. That's a consistent theme from beginning to end. There is diversity amidst the unity of the body of Christ. So when we come as Christians, we don't cease being American or Peruvian, or white or black or Asian or Latino. Those aspects continue to be essential and core to who we are. Another thing that it means is that as we learn the ways of the Lord, we're probably going to express those ways differently. One missiologist says this. He says, Every culture makes possible a certain approach to the gospel that brings to light certain of its aspects that, in, that is in other cultures less visible or even hidden. Let me say that again. Every culture makes possible a certain approach to the gospel that brings to light certain of its aspects that is in other cultures less visible or even hidden. That's beautiful. Every culture has something unique and special and valuable to bring to God's family. We all need each other. The global church needs the national church of each country, of each nation. And together we all get to go as outsiders to learn the ways of our Lord in unison. And that brings me to the, to the last question. How should we, as God's global family, respond to the biggest issues facing the global church? So how should God's global family respond to the biggest issues facing the global church? And I, obviously, I'm not, I don't have an answer. If I did have a full answer to that, then I would probably be rich um, and famous, and I'm neither of those. Um, but I'm going to focus on one, one issue and one way we can respond as a church, as a global church. So the first thing is this. The inescapable reality of God's global vision 
The vision that we see in Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 is upon us. It is happening as we speak. The nations are streaming to God. They are coming in massive numbers. It's amazing. Most Christians now live in the majority world, which is, is Latin America, Africa, and Asia. People are coming to the Lord in the majority world in massive numbers. The rate of growth is incredible. People are streaming to the mountain of Yahweh. But there's a, there's a problem. And one, an organization called Training Leaders International uh, describes the problem like this. They say, around the world, there are 2.2 million evangelical churches. Okay? 2.2 million evangelical churches. 85% are led by pastors with no formal theological training. 2.2 million churches, 85% are led by pastors with no formal theological training. That's a very high number. I mean, we take it for granted that, in, in, in the U.S. at least, that, uh, that pastors and leaders will have some training or that we can trust them, that we can go to them with questions and maybe have uh, a response that is helpful. We, we, there are people we look to and say, if I, if I ask them, they might be able to help. 85% of the churches around the world have pastors with no training at all. And the reason that this is a, a problem, let me play devil's advocate for a second. I said at the beginning, my youth leader, Victor Hirarola, I don't. he might not have even finished high school. I don't know. But he had no theological training of any kind. So obviously, it's not always necessary in every case to have training. But... Part of the reason that it's so important is because without some training, it's difficult for pastors to help construct a foundation for their people, to help them understand the ways of the Lord. And as a result of, of a lack of foundation, it can often, pastors and the people can be vulnerable to false teachings and false gospels. So let me give you one evidence of this. Uh, in Latin America and in other places as well, but particularly Latin America, the prosperity gospel is growing very rapidly, and it's all over the place. The prosperity gospel, in a nutshell, tells people this. It says, in response to your faith, God will bless you with material things, with spiritual things, with health, etc. Right? So, you trust in God, and he will make you healthy, wealthy, and spiritually wise. What almost always happens is this. The preacher tells people, give a seed of faith, and the seed of faith is money. Just give that seed of faith, and you can be healed from cancer. Give that seed of faith, and God will multiply that money 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Give that seed of faith, and God will bless you. And what ends up happening is that preacher becomes rich on those seeds of faith, and on the donations of the poor in their congregations. And these types of perversions of the gospel, like the prosperity gospel, allow wolves to terrorize people and make the poor and the vulnerable 
poorer and more vulnerable. This is happening all over the place. And there are many stories that could be told about the ways that the prosperity gospel victimizes people that are already victims. Theological education can help with that. It's not going to fix the problem fully, but it can help with that by training pastors and leaders to understand the truth of the gospel so that they can protect people against false gospels, which, by the way, is a massive theme throughout the New Testament. So if that's the situation in Latin America, in the U.S., we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of theological education. In the Chicago area, we have 14 accredited Protestant colleges. And among those 14, several are well-known and respected around the world. Right? And that's in one city. By comparison, in Peru, there are zero accredited Protestant schools. There's not a single one. So if a pastor or a leader wants to get training, wants to learn more, wants to, to steward their, their responsibilities with their congregation, well, what are they supposed to do? Where do they go? What options do they have? We have a vicious cycle going on. There aren't professors for the schools, so we can't train people to be professors for the schools. We have pastors that want training, but they have no options or poor options. But what I see here is a massive opportunity, actually, because the needs of the church in the majority world, Latin America in particular, match well the strength of the American church. And that's part of the reason that I've spent the last 10 years uh, receiving training so that I can go back to Peru and share what I've learned. And hopefully over the course of maybe a couple generations, situations like this can slowly but surely improve. Right? The, the church around the world loves Jesus and wants to serve him well. But there's a need, a big need, for leaders that are trained and have spent the time and effort to steward their responsibility well. So the question that we have to answer today is how will we, as a, as a church in the United States, respond to this call? How will we answer this call and this need? There are many different ways that we can do that, through pa- prayer, through uh, giving, and through going. And I'm not here to ask you to do any of those things in particular, but I am ask you, here to ask you to pray and say, God, what, what, what do you have for us as a body? How can we serve the global church? What can we do to help serve our brothers and sisters? The mountain of God is high above all the others. If you're here today, at some level, you've seen that. People around the world have seen that as well. So we each, all of us, come as outsiders to our God and say, what can we bring? What can we bring? How can we serve our Lord and how can we serve each other? That's the question that we need to answer today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your love for us.
We pray, Lord, that we pray that you would help us to see your glory and that we would be filled with a desire to serve you, to love you, and to love each other. I pray this in your name. Amen.